Welcome to Unless, Stories from Everyday Earthsavers, a podcast where I interview ordinary people, people just like you who through passion, inspiration, or straight-up determination have found a way to direct the future of our environment toward a more perfect outcome. Through their words, I hope to inspire you, the listener, to learn, to grow, or to make a change no matter how small. Your actions have the power to shape our future, because in the great words of Dr. Seuss, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing is going to get better. It's not. Now on to today's story. Welcome to episode 4 of Unless, Stories of Everyday Earthsavers. In today's episode, I talk to Suzanne Steinert, a conservationist who created the Beluga Whale Alliance Group, involved in the conservation of local Alaskan populations of beluga. We talk about how a love for travel and openness to conversation can lead to a journey of exploration and discovery, and how one should never miss an opportunity to experience and reflect upon our natural world. You can find more information about Suzanne's work at www.belugawhalealliance.org, and as always, you can find the show notes with links to people, places, and things we talk about at sciencescenes.com slash podcasts. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome Suzanne Steiner. I invited you on the show because you are taking conservation action in your own way, and I was wondering, uh, how do you contribute to the the conservation field? Sure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the program. I really, my journey, I guess, (laughs) in conservation started way back when I was a kid and just enthralled with zoo books and wild animals um, living in distant places. I grew up in Kentucky, near Cincinnati, Ohio. And I always loved the outdoors and wild spaces. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to Alaska when I was a teenager and um, go on a tour of Denali National Park and see grizzly bears in the wild and moose for the first time. And as I grew older, it became, I started out on one career path and then transitioned ultimately and found myself doing what I feel like I was always meant to do, which is pursue a career in conservation. Um, But along the way, I did little things that kind of helped me along too. I volunteered at a zoo when I was traveling in New Zealand for a few months and got to work with Kiwis there, <laughs> one of their national icons. And you're talking about the, the bird, not the people, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I worked, yeah, exactly. I worked with, with the people too. Um, but yes, talking about the bird. So all of these experiences were sort of stepping stones for me. But um, I feel like looking back on my life now, I'm 32, that my direction and passion were were pretty clear. And um, now I am actually not in Kentucky. I've been living in Alaska for the last going on 10 years now. Um, I, I first started working and living up here in 2010 and working in various wilderness jobs as a guide or at a wilderness lodge and tourism. And again, really what brought me up here was the promise of wild spaces and wild animals um, like there exists still really nowhere else in the United States. And after my first trip up here, I really fell in love with that experience and um, that ability to experience wildlife in that way. And 
grew into, again, just really grew into a desire to be a conservationist full time and to protect those wild spaces and those wild animals. So um, I landed a job at the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center in 2014 as an animal care intern there. So that was really, really my first sort of official break, you could say, into or entry level job into the conservation world. And um, from there, went on to apply in Miami University of Ohio's Global Field Program, um, which I learned about kind of in a really cool, cosmically serendipitous way <laughs> that we could go into later. Um, being sort of from being from the area and sort of not, but um, but in in that program, upon getting acceptance into that program was when I really decided, okay, um, this is what I want to do, and this is this is my ticket, and that I wanted to focus on endangered species conservation. Right. You said your original career path wasn't quite what you envisioned on your original path. Can you uh, explain a little bit what 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 was your original career path taking you, or where did you see your original career path, and how did that kind of evolve over time? Sure. So I actually moved to Alaska in 2010, straight from New York City, where I had been living for um, about four years, getting my undergraduate degree in a, a kind of an individualized study program that combined travel and journalism um, and globalization. So uh, I was at the time really fascinated by, of course, traveling and world cultures. And, and I was, I had a knack for writing and I really loved writing. And, um, you know, I had instructors in, in high school tell me that it was a skill, you know, that I had that I could, could potentially take with me um, and develop into a career if I wanted to. So that was journalism, uh, you could say, was specifically travel journalism was the route that I was preparing myself to take uh, during my undergraduate degree. I worked in the field for a few years, did, did some traveling to uh, New Zealand and Thailand and, you know, some other countries. And there was, it was, it was very fun and very fulfilling in its own ways. But there was something, every time I traveled somewhere, I found myself being drawn to, you know, conservation topics and issues like eco-friendly resorts or (laughs) um, wanting to learn about what you know, the wildlife was like in those areas and, um, you know, really wanting not just to learn and write about those things, but to really be involved and um, experiencing them in a new way. And, you know, as I learned about the conservation and biodiversity crisis that we're currently experiencing on a global scale, I wanted to be a part of that, I found myself realizing. So that's sort of when um, I decided that a career path change might be in the works and started sniffing that out. Yeah, my my pathway was almost the same way. Um, I started off as a chemist, well, not journalism, but chemistry, and I was an organic chemist, a small little place outside of Woodridge uh, near Chicago, and I, I just wasn't quite feeling it. 
you know, um, it was kind of the same thing day in, day out. And I was, you know, looking at other things to do. And actually I went to Alaska, uh, my first year as a chemist, I did, uh, I ran a, nice. I, yeah, I ran a marathon outside of Anchorage and then we were down in Seward for a while. Mount Marathon? Um, no, Mayor's Midnight Sun. So it was right over the solstice. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And it was, it was really cool. Um, I want to get back there someday, but anyway, uh, so I, I started volunteering at the Field Museum, and that's uh, the Field Museum is our natural history museum out here because of childhood experiences and whatnot, and I just fell in love with the uh, informal education, and they did a lot of conservation work at the Field Museum, and that started me uh, looking at that, but then I started teaching biology more than chemistry uh, when I became a teacher after I did informal and everything. And then I started looking at mm -hmm. the looking at different programs to, to get a little bit more educated in biology uh, because I'm worried, like you said, about the biodiversity and the um, climate change, uh, uh, the extinction, the mass, the sixth extinction. And uh, started looking for programs that could meet my needs. And like you, I went to the AIP program instead of the global field program, but that's how I did it. So you said you found out about the Global Field Program, and it was an interesting story. How, uh, can you tell me about that a little bit? Sure. <laughs> so um, on one of my travel experiences after I'd been, been uh, came up to Alaska and I was living and working up here, mostly seasonal jobs in tourism um, and hospitality because I had worked in hospitality through college and had experience in that field as well. But I was starting, like I said, to kind of make the transition between writing and um, a conservation career. So in 2014, I took a trip to Thailand for four months in the spring. And my goal for the trip was really to go there. I'd always loved elephants. <laughs> They're, of course, an icon, endangered species, um, wildlife icon. And I wanted to travel to that area of the world that I had never been to before. And I wanted to experience what it was like to participate in um, volunteerism that supports elephant conservation. So in Thailand, there's a movement to um, to help protect elephants that are being abused, specifically um, in industries like the tourism industry and that are be being captured from the wild and treated um, in these really harsh ways. And there's a movement there. There's numerous sanctuaries that are cropping up, um, some more legitimate than others. Right. <laughs> and That's how it always that are is. Taking, right. That are taking those elephants and providing a, ha a safe haven for them, those elephants that have been abused, and, and really trying to put an end to this wild capture of elephants and the use of bull hooks and riding elephants and the, de the demand, you know, that exists in the tourist trade. So I was really drawn to that specific conservation issue and, you know, wanted to help and participate at one of these sanctuaries. So um, I went over, I worked in a local school um, for a few months so that I could experience the culture and um, have some connections with people there and also to save up some money so that I could spend two weeks volunteering at two of these elephant sanctuaries in different parts of the country. And when I arrived for my training to be a teacher, so I taught a class of third graders in a rural province just northeast of Bangkok. Um, I taught them English, science, math, and health. <laughs> but prior to uh, taking that job, I, I had to undergo a training for a week in one of the towns 
in the southern part of the country. And the first day I showed up, I was riding a bus to the training site. And there were a number of other folks on the bus, mostly from, you know, mostly around my age, maybe 20s, early 30s. Mostly it seemed like to be from the chatter going on. I had my earbuds on, but most of them seemed to be from maybe Europe, England or Ireland. Or But there was one girl I heard or a voice in the back of the bus I started hearing talking about Skyline Chili. <laughs> and if you're from the Cincinnati, Ohio area, which is where uh, near where Miami University is located, um, you know of Skyline Chili. So my ears perked up and I turned around and lo and behold, yeah, there was this girl from um, my hometown that went to high school with my sister. Oh my God, what a <laughs> small world. In the back of- Yeah, very small world moment. And so she and I struck up a pretty quick friendship. And she was the one who actually eventually, you know, after learning about why I was really there, mentioned to me this graduate program that she was applying for um, at Miami called the Global Field Program. Really innovative program that launched about 10 years ago in partnership with the Cincinnati Zoo where you could pursue a master's degree in biology, a master's of arts, because of its focus on kind of the social aspects of conservation. And it was a field program. So you could, you know, live anywhere, primarily, the classes are primarily satellite, um, online, but you travel to different conservation field sites every summer and um, take courses that are applicable to your master's goals. I had I had th- I come across I think the Earth Expeditions courses before, which are those standalone field courses that we take during our program. But I ha- I didn't realize you could actually get a whole degree this way. So that was one really cool facet of that trip. And then there's another kind of second really cool serendipitous side of the story. <laughs> But that's how I learned about the program. That's really, really neat. It's amazing how when you take risks and broaden your horizons, how some of those things, those opportunities like are what you make of it. So if you weren't a little bit more gregarious and outgoing and, and traveling to new places, you would have never encountered this person who of all places went to high school with your sister and and, wow yeah and the the really the moral of the trip for me was to start dipping my toes into the conservation you know field and to experience what real conservation felt like and was so it was very meaningful that you know I learned about this this really innovative wonderful program you know on that specific journey and again there's there's more more full circle serendipitous yeah, <laughs> to it as well <laughs> once you started the program and started learning a little bit more like obviously you're engaged in con- conservation or the idea at least of conservation prior to this point uh with your love of elephants and everything but once you started the program and you started learning more about conservation where did that lead you today? What what are how are you working um, in conservation action or conservation education right now currently? Yeah, so currently, I am uh, operating a nonprofit organization devoted to beluga whale conservation <laughs> from my uh, current home base here in Alaska, and we where I currently live. Uh, 
is in South Central Alaska, just outside of Anchorage, uh, like where you visited. And did you remember when you came and traveled here last, did you hear of the beluga whales that we have in this region uh, or see them? No, I didn't. We saw what uh, species of dolphin or porpoise do you have out there? I saw some of them. Harbor. Yeah. Or, well, a few different types. But yeah, the, the really fast the ones, the really fast ones, the dark blue, uh, like to follow uh, tourist boats and everything. I saw a couple of those. And, yeah. Yeah. And we um, saw one of the species, one of the species of larger whales out way out. We watched some glaciers calving. They're probably not even there anymore. Yeah. I, not, I didn't hear anything about beluga whales. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about them in the area? I didn't even know they were out in that area. Yeah. And um, they kind of come and go in terms of being visible from shore and in the region where I'm currently located, um, the water, it's called the Cook Inlet. Um, and it's a 180 mile long estuary that empties, it surrounds the city of Anchorage and then it empties out into the Gulf of Alaska and greater Pacific Ocean. Um, and it's very turbulent water. There's tidal, some of the largest tidal fluctuations in the world. Um, we get a, between high and low tide every day twice a day, um, about 30 foot tidal changes. <laughs> so not a lot of sightseeing boats hang out right in the Cook Inlet area. I, so couldn't, were, I couldn't imagine uh, it. <laughs> yeah, you were probably on the other side. Yeah, we were <laughs> right the out the Seward ha Harbor. Um, we took some yeah. boat tours there. So yeah. And it's beautiful down there. And yeah, up in the Cook Inlet, though, we've got um, it's really turbulent muddy water it looks like um, people you know say it looks like chocolate milk because it's got glacial silt pouring into it um, just there's tons of glacial rivers pouring down from the mountains and emptying all this ground finely ground up rock that the glaciers have crushed over the millennia and so we have a population of beluga whales that live here and they're called the cook inlet belugas they're one of five beluga populations in the whole state, and they are pretty unique. Uh, they're arguably the most endangered beluga population in the world, and I'll get to why <laughs> that is in a second, but um, they're the smallest of our beluga populations. The current estimate uh, is only about 328 whales, but back as far as the 1970s, or as recently as the 1970s, when aerial estimates first began, there were, um, it's estimated about 1,300. And they are geographically isolated in Cook Inlet. So there's the barrier of the Aleutian Islands that just out over a thousand miles towards Japan. And that's really what keeps them separated if you look at a map of Alaska from the other four beluga populations, the Bering Sea, Bristol Bay, uh, Chukchi and Beaufort populations of belugas. So they've been genetically isolated, some researchers think, for several thousand years, maybe as long as 10,000 years. So they're also um, ge geographically isolated. They're also, for that reason, genetically distinct. And they face a lot of pressures that other belugas in Alaska and elsewhere in the Arctic don't face or don't yet face or will increasingly face. <laughs> um, by being so close to Alaska's largest city of Anchorage, which is, has a population of, I think of right now about 400,000, but you have to fact check that. <laughs> yeah, it's around around that, yeah, or a little bit more. So um, the greater Anchorage surrounding, you know, metropolitan area and, and um, boroughs. So 
um, the town of Girdwood, where I live about 30 miles south of Anchorage, is included in the municipality. And we're, um, we're right along a stretch of shoreline, a 40-mile stretch of shoreline of Cook Inlet, where it, which is designated critical habitat for this population. So they are listed as an endangered species under the ESA because of their genetic distinction. They're considered critically endangered by the IUCN. So being so close to Anchorage, um, which has really burgeoned as a city in the last 40 years, 40 to 50 years, they faced an increasing amount of pressures, everything from construction and development projects of highways and buildings and infrastructure to the increased vessel traffic um, as the port of Anchorage has become, you know, kind of the main space for all of our cargo coming in and out of the lower 48 and elsewhere. Our airport is right, right smack dab, almost on the beach. <laughs> so constantly, you know, air traffic flying overhead. Um, Alaska has, you know, the highest ratio of residents to that are pilots of like any state in the United States too. So right, it's not it's of, not easy um, terrain to drive or walk over. You got mountains, you got rivers, you got bears. You got just, so right. <laughs> right. So lots of lots of air traffic all the time. Uh, the belugas have a lot to contend with, and initially it's believed that unregulated subsistence harvest as really Anchorage and and areas around Anchorage became more accessible, belugas were able to be hunted a little more easily um, back, you know, 30 years ago or so when their numbers really first started to plummet. And at that time, they weren't, the, the subsistence harvest wasn't wasn't regulated in, in any specific way or managed um, for conservation purposes of this population. And right. Can you explain that a little bit, subsistence uh, hunting? Yes. So in Alaska, we have the ability up here, um, both members of the native populations and tribes, and also many Alaska citizens have the ability to subsistence hunt and fish because there is such an abundance um, still of wildlife here that is, you know, for the most part, properly managed <laughs> for those purposes. And so um, if you're an Alaska resident, you can hunt moose. Um, you can fish for salmon. Um, you can dip net for salmon. If you are a member of a native tribe, you can harvest certain types of marine mammals as well, like seals and beluga whales. And um, these are traditional, the harvest of marine mammals for uh, members of native communities in the Arctic is, is a tradition, you know, that supported their survival for thousands of years. When you live so far up in uh, native communities in the Arctic without often access, you know, in the past to fresh fruits and vegetables <laughs> or meals that got flown in, you know, canned goods that we get flown in now, that was that was their source of food and sustenance and nutrition. Many beluga populations um, around the world are still harvested for subsistence purposes, and the other remaining populations of belugas in Alaska are as well, um, but that that harvest is, is now regulated. But once it was realized that um, the harvest was having an unsustainable impact on on our population here in Cook Inlet, it voluntarily ceased. And there was a, a memorandum uh, uh, agreement that was drawn up between the native communities here and um, 
the managing bodies uh, to hold off on hunting until the population regained its numbers and rebounded. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened. And um, the belugas have, this population has has continued, excuse me, to decline. Their current rate of decline, I believe, is 0.4% a year, but it's fluctuated between that and like, you know, 1.5 or so in the last decade. So the current question is, why are they continuing to decline? Um, What is the main reason for that, or is it a combination of reasons? The threats that they face have been identified, you know, noise from vessel traffic belugas are used um, echolocation like dolphins and orcas do. Um, So they're very sensitive to the acoustic environment. Um, So noise from vessel traffic and boats, for instance, can definitely impact them and their behavior activity and even long-term survival. Is it an issue of if they were, if too many adults in the population have died out, have they lost some cultural knowledge of where the best foraging sites are? So there's some new research that came out recently last year that talked about belugas and other populations actually passing down this knowledge of hunting locations and seasonal foraging sites. And that, you know, that knowledge or beluga presence in those sites was correlated with certain like strains of mitochondrial DNA. There's a lot of research going on that's looking into what's happening, cool research. But I realized living here in this area that they're starting my graduate program that is really, really promotes innovative and innovative, taking innovative approaches to conservation issues in the region and regions where um, its students live around the world. And I realized that there was no community kind of based organization or nonprofit organization in general that was helping to support these research efforts and get the public involved in beluga conservation. I was also realizing living in this community that the people that live here value the beluga so much. I mean, we we live in one of two places in the world that I know of where you can drive a highway and see wild belugas swimming in the water (laughs) right alongside you. And this is one of them. The other is the St. Lawrence River area estuary in eastern Canada in the Quebec province and the St. Lawrence uh, belugas there, which are also endangered. But realizing that people really value being able to see the whales, but there was a lack of connection between that valuation and, you know, a knowledge about them or being able to participate in their conservation. Yeah. So I started utilizing for, for my project assignments, my master plan that I developed was I decided I wanted to study and learn about how to uh, implement conservation strategies that promote endangered species conservation. And so having this critically endangered population of belugas right in my backyard, I realized I could start implementing strategies that I was learning about myself um, with my project work. Yeah, talk about local issues. (laughs) So that's, yeah, kind of what I started to do and the organization idea for the organization really just grew from there. Um, if listeners want to know a little bit more about the organization, is there a website they can visit? Yes, we just 
recently soft launched our website. It's www.belugawhalealliance.org. We also have a Facebook page and uh, Instagram. So follow us on social media too. And we post videos and images of belugas during beluga season is what we call it here during the spring and the late summer and fall. And we also are trying to have a global focus as well, really try to tie in what is happening with our belugas here and kind of project it outwards to show that with climate change and the current direction <laughs> that things are headed over population. Yeah, a lot of these issues of conservation concern that are affecting other endangered species, but also our belugas right here, and will are, are going to increasingly be an issue and a factor as the Arctic ice continues to melt and ship, tra- you know, shipping lanes open up and you know oil fields <laughs> um, open up and new development opportunities arise. We're trying to kind of be a represent belugas on a global level as well by addressing issues locally here at home. Right. Engaging elsewhere through the local conservation efforts. You had an interesting journey to get to where you are today. How do you think we can encourage people to actively engage with with these conservation issues, with uh, the the plight of the beluga, the plight of endangered species, overconsumption, overpopulation? I think it's really easy when... You know, you live in an area like the people who I who live in my community and they see the they see this endangered species, this magical, charismatic, really easy to love and care about (laughs) um, species swimming around in their backyard. It's it's easier to care about that and them. And but if you say live in Kentucky or (laughs) a landlocked state far from the Arctic, it might be difficult to to relate or to connect to that specific issue. But I think really the key there is to bring it home for yourself and reflect on, you know, these conservation issues that belugas are dealing with. And, you know, like I said, other, so many other endangered, you're affecting so many other endangered species and, and wildlife all over the world. And so they're occurring in your backyard too. And what I would really encourage people to do is think about what are the issues that are prevalent in your own home community? What are the endangered species that you have in your backyard? Because in all likelihood, there's pro- there are probably some, mm-hmm. <laughs> even if you live in a city. So so just start researching that and and about how if you if you don't think maybe that these issues do affect you, they affect all of us. <laughs> and this is it has to do with our our survival. I mean, we're all on this big blue dot together. And even though it might not feel like it because of our modern, you know, way of life and culture and the way we live, I think that's really what is going to what you know is the key for people is is reflecting on and drawing those connections and thinking about what you value, you know, what, what do you care about and how those issues might affect you and those things going forward. So, so would that be your um, suggestion then for some concrete small action that anybody can take is that to just slow down a little bit, make some observations and do some internal reflecting? Absolutely. One of the things I think I love the most about getting people out watching the belugas we have here is 
so many local people, even though we live in Alaska where we're surrounded by nature and people go out in nature all the time, we live right next to Anchorage. And there's so many people who live there who don't even know, like you, you know, you traveled here, but, and you didn't realize there were belugas coming around, but there are people who, who live even in the city of Anchorage that don't know, or they don't realize they're endangered or why. And to get those people out and watching, seeing beluga whales for the first time and understanding why they, you know, how special they are, how they're like an indicator species for the health of the ecosystem, how intelligent they are. And just seeing seeing people appreciate not just that and not just the animal itself, but just slow down and sit and and for an hour or two and just take in the environment around you. I mean, that to me is one of the most rewarding aspects of what we do. And even outside of conservation action, I think just sitting down and, and doing some reflecting is just a, a benefit in and of itself, not just for conservation action. Absolutely. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Suzanne. I greatly appreciate you sharing your passion for conservation action through communicating and educating and understanding of endangered species, especially the beluga. Is there anything else you want to say or promote before we go? Thank you so much, Patrick. And yeah, I would love for folks to visit our website, www.belugawhalealliance.org. And if you appreciate beluga whales or would like to come visit us and see them in the wild um, and help out with one of our conservation projects, uh, let us know or support our work by making a donation online. So we're currently 100% volunteer run and operated, and we're really looking to increase our capacity here over the next couple of years so we can really continue to hit the ground running and keep this population of really special belugas off the endangered species list. All right. Well, well, thank you once again, Suzanne. I hope to talk to you soon and see how your Beluga Whale Alliance is going. And I will be uh, definitely following you myself and uh, hopefully some of my listeners do as well. So until next time, thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unless Stories of Everyday Earth Savers. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and learned something new, or at least gained appreciation for somebody's story, because everybody has a story. Before you leave, I want you to know that I cannot continue without you, the listener, so I thank you so much. If you have any idea for a future show or ways to improve, please drop me an email at feedback at sciencescenes.com. Unless is going to be a twice-monthly show, but the first few episodes will be released at an accelerated pace. To make sure you don't miss a show, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use. Also, make sure to leave a review or comment wherever you downloaded this episode. Positive feedback and constructive criticism can help this podcast to become a better version of itself. So, until next time, take some action to make this world a better place. Because without you, things won't get better. No, they will not. See you soon.